0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 85, When Darkness Veiled the Sky. Hi, I'm Nikki.
1: And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss three incidents across three centuries when daytime turned to darkness in the skies over Boston. It may sound like we're describing solar eclipses, but you'll recall that we already covered Boston's history with eclipses last August. This time, We're talking about a different natural phenomenon, one that was completely unpredictable and each time led to speculation that the end of the world was at hand. But before we talk about Boston's dark days, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event.
0: We'll see in a few minutes how fire is important to the history of Boston's dark days. So our featured historic site this week is all about fire and history. The Boston Fire Museum is located in a rehabbed firehouse in the Fort Point neighborhood, just around the corner from the Children's Museum. The Fire Museum has an extensive collection of historic photos, artifacts, firefighting equipment, and even fire engines. The collection features a 1793 Ephraim Thayer pumper, which was a hand-drawn and hand-pumped fire engine that was the first constructed by an apprentice to Paul Revere. Firefighters had to pull the engine to a fire, manually fill the reservoir with buckets, then pump a handle vigorously to direct a stream of water toward the flames. The unit was used in West Boston until 1908, when a larger model replaced it. Also on display are a hand-drawn engine from the 1860s and one from the 1880s that began as a horse-drawn, steam-powered pumper before being converted to a gasoline engine. They display a collection of fire alarm systems from across the decades, starting with the earliest fire telegraphs developed in the 1850s and going through more modern electronic systems from the 1960s that gathered signals from fire alarms and retransmitted them to the responsible firehouse. Their firefighting equipment ranges from fire buckets that every Boston home and business was required to maintain in the 18th century to glass grenades full of fire suppressant that were thrown at fires in the early 20th century, to protective gear and breathing apparatus in use by the Boston Fire Department today. The museum is a favorite of children, but it has a lot to offer history buffs of all ages. It's open every Saturday from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Admission is free, but donations are gladly accepted. Street parking is limited in the neighborhood, but there are garages nearby, and the museum is a short walk from South Station.
1: And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a unique walking tour on June 23rd, led by friend of the show, Rose Doherty. Rose is an author, and we know her as the President Emerita of the Partnership of Historic Bostons and as a great tour guide. She's also a recovering academic, having served most recently as Assistant Dean and Director of Liberal Arts and Criminal Justice Programs at Northeastern University's University College. Before that, she was an English faculty member and Academic Dean at Gibbs College. Now she's the author of the first history of Catherine Gibbs School and Gibbs College, and the amazing entrepreneurial founder Catherine Gibbs, who's the focus of the tour. Here's how Rose describes it. What would Gibbs do, or WWGD, is the tagline used on television's NCIS. Jethro Gibbs is a former Marine officer who lives by a set of rules which his staff must follow. Women and men who went to Gibbs College during its century also lived by rules. A single misspelled word earned a zero, and ignoring rules about dress or professional behavior resulted in penalties. Gibbs was the most famous school of its kind in the world from 1911 to 2011. Catherine Gibbs made sure that all of the campuses from Providence, Boston, New York, and beyond were in beautiful buildings in elegant parts of their cities. What could be more elegant than Back Bay? Join me in a tour of the excellent sights of Gibbs in the Back Bay from 1917 to 2011. Whether you're a graduate, a history buff, or someone who has heard about Gibbs for years and wants to know more, here's a great treat. While the tour is free, it will be limited to just 12 guests. We'll post the link to the description in this week's show notes, along with Rose's contact information. She asks that potential guests call or email to make a reservation. Now it's time to turn to this week's main topic.
0: Writing from her home in Braintree, our old friend Abigail Adams describes a phenomenon that would come to be known as the Dark Day of 1780 in a letter to James Lovell. We have had a strange phenomena in the natural world. On Friday, the 19th of May, the sun rose with a thick, smoky atmosphere indicating dry weather, which we had for 10 days before. Soon after 8 o'clock in the morning, the sun shut in, and it rained half an hour. After that, there arose light, luminous clouds from the north and west, the wind at southwest. They gradually spread over the hemisphere, till such a darkness took place as appears in a total eclipse. By eleven o'clock, candles were lit up in every house. The cattle retired to the barns, the fowls to the roost, and the frogs croaked. The greatest darkness was about one o'clock. It was three before the sky assumed its usual look. The luminous clouds disappeared, and it rained gently for an hour or two. About eight o'clock in the evening, almost instantaneously, the heavens were covered with Egyptian darkness. Objects the nearest to you could not be discerned, though the moon was at her full. It continued till twelve at night and then disappeared without either wind or rain. The clouds passed to the south and east. I have given you only my own observations. I hope some of our philosophical geniuses will endeavor to investigate so unusual an appearance. It is a matter of great consternation to many. It was the most solemn appearance my eyes ever beheld, but the philosophical eye can look through and trust to the ruler of the sky.
1: An anonymous poet set the events in verse, saying, in part, Nineteenth of May, a gloomy day, When darkness veiled the sky. The sun's decline may be a sign, Some great event is nigh. Let us remark how black and dark Was the ensuing night. And for a time the moon declined, and did not give her light. A letter in Boston's Continental Journal from someone writing under the name Viator adds a detailed account of the darkest part of the day. About 11 o'clock, the darkness was such as to demand our attention and put us upon making observations. At half-past 11, in a room with three windows, 24 panes each all open towards the southeast and south, large print could not be read by persons of good eyes. About twelve o'clock, the windows being still open, a candle cast a shade so well-defined on the wall as that profiles were taken with as much ease as they could have been in the night. About one o'clock, a glint of light which had continued till this time in the east shut in, and the darkness was greater than it had been for any time before. Between one and two o'clock, the wind from the west freshened a little, and glint appeared in that quarter. We dined about two, the windows all open, and two candles burning on the table. In the time of the greatest darkness, some of the dunghill fowls went to their roost. Cocks crowed in answer to one another, as they commonly do in the night. Woodcocks, which are night birds, whistled as they do only in the dark. Frogs peeped. In short, there was the appearance of midnight at noonday. About three o'clock, the light in the west increased, the motion of the clouds more quick. Their color higher and more brassy than any time before. There appeared to be quick flashes or coruscations, not unlike the Aurora Borealis. Abigail Adams' hilariously named uncle, Cotton Tufts, noted the reaction of the less enlightened residents of the area. The vulgar considered it, some as pretending great calamities, others as a prelude to the general dissolution of all things.
0: Writing over a hundred years later, Historian Sidney Purley also colored his version of the events with an apocalyptic tint, saying, The light of the sun seemed to be almost taken away from the earth, and a strange darkness filled the hours that should have been brightest, bringing fear, anxiety, and awe into the minds of the people who generally believed that it was the darkening of the sun and moon preparatory to the day of the consummation of all things some perhaps expecting the appearance in the clouds of the Son of Man. It was undoubtedly equal to the darkness that overspread Judea during the hours that our Savior was dying upon the cross. In Boston, one of Rev. Dr. Byles' parishioners sent her servant to him when the darkness was grossest, asking whether or not, in his opinion, it did not pretend an earthquake, hurricane, or some other elementary commotion. Give my respectful compliments to your mistress, facetiously replied the doctor, and tell her I am as much in the dark as she is. People knew of the prophecy of the darkening of the sun and moon, and ignorant and learned alike were not certain that this was not at least a token of the dreadful day of universal destruction. Melancholy and awe filled most minds, Many thinking that the sun of mercy had set, and that the night of despair, of judgment, and the end of all things was at hand. People gazed upon each other in wonder and astonishment. It was popularly believed that the Revolutionary War, which for more than five years had been waged, was the fulfillment of that other prophecy that announces wars and rumors of wars as coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. A sort of superstitious horror brooded over all the people. It influenced the minds of all classes, of the strong and learned, as well as the weak and ignorant.
1: Though Pearlie may have overstated things somewhat, there certainly were folks in New England who believed the end was at hand. An 1839 article in Hayward's New England Gazetteer recalls the reaction of Senator Abraham Davenport when the skies began to grow dark in Hartford. The 19th of May, 1780, was a remarkable dark day. Candles were lighted in many houses, the birds were silent and disappeared, and the fowls retired to roost. The legislature of Connecticut was then in session in Hartford. A very general opinion prevailed that the day of judgment was at hand. The House of Representatives, being unable to transact their business, adjourned. A proposal to adjourn the council was under consideration. When the opinion of Mr. Davenport was asked, he answered, I am against an adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching, or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Davenport was truly living up to the message of that old bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. Hundreds of miles away in New Jersey, where the effect wasn't as strong, George Washington recorded the event in his journal. Heavy and uncommon kind of clouds, dark and at the same time a bright and reddish kind of light intermixed with them. Brightening and darkening alternately, this continued till afternoon when the sun began to appear. Further evidence that Sidney Purley did not give nearly enough credit to the people of the 18th century, especially the strong and learned people, comes from Samuel Williams. He was the A.M. Hollis Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy at Harvard, and he tried to give an exhaustive and objective description of the event. The time of this extraordinary darkness was May 19, 1780. It came on between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and continued until the middle of the next night, but with different appearances at different places. As to the manner of its approach, it seemed to appear first of all in the southwest, The wind came from that quarter, and the darkness appeared to come on with the clouds that came in that direction. The degree to which the darkness arose was different in different places. In most parts of the country, it was so great that people were unable to read common print, determine the time of day by their clocks or watches, dine, or manage their domestic business, without the light of candles. In some places, the darkness was so great that persons could not see to read common print in the open air for several hours together but I believe this was not generally the case. The extent of this darkness was very remarkable. Our intelligence in this respect is not so particular as I would wish, but from the accounts that have been received, it seems to have extended all over the New England states. It was observed as far east as Falmouth, and at that time Falmouth referred to the city we know as Portland, Maine. To the westward we hear of it reaching to the furthest parts of Connecticut and Albany. To the southward, it was observed all along the seacoasts, and to the north, as far as our settlements extend. It is probable it extended much beyond these limits, in some directions, but the exact boundaries cannot be ascertained by any observations that I have been able to collect. With regard to its duration, it continued in this place at least 14 hours, but it is probable this was not exactly the same in different parts of the country. The appearance and effects were such as tended to make the prospect extremely dull and gloomy. Candles were lighted up in the houses. The birds, having sung their evening songs, disappeared and became silent. The fowls retired to roost. The cocks were crowing all around as at break of day. Objects could not be distinguished but at very little distance. And everything bore the appearance and gloom of night.
0: Being a scientifically-minded professor, Williams also took lots of measurements of temperature and barometric pressure, observing that they were experiencing what we would call a high-pressure system and that the temperature was slightly lower than normal. He noted reports that there was a broad strip of black scum left behind on the banks of rivers and the seashore after the dark day. There were scattered showers throughout the area, and Williams quotes a resident of Ipswich as saying, He found the people much surprised with the strange appearance and smell of rainwater, which they had saved in tubs. Upon examining the water, I found, says he, a light scum over it, which, rubbing between my thumb and finger, I found to be nothing but the black ashes of burnt leaves. The water gave the same strong sooty smell which we had observed in the air. Williams confirmed that he also thought the residue on the waters was black ashes of burnt leaves without any sulfurous or other mixtures. Continuing his observations, he recounted, I put out several sheets of clean paper in the air and rain. When they had been out four or five hours, I dried them by the fire. They were much soiled and became dark in their color and felt as if they had been rubbed with oil or grease. But upon burning them... There was not any appearance of sulfurous or nitrous particles. Now, what we have going on here is some
1: poheck.
0: That would be problem, observation, hypothesis, experiment, and conclusion.
1: 1780 wasn't the first time that a dark day was recorded in Boston, and it wouldn't be the last. On October 21st, 1716, a Sabbath day, a similar event was recorded, though it's not nearly so well documented as the one that occurred almost 64 years later. Several sources we found said that Cotton Mather was so intrigued by the dark day that he sent an account of it to the Royal Philosophical Society in London, but we haven't been able to track down a copy of the account itself. One of the only primary sources we could find was this diary entry from Stephen Jacques of Newbury, Mass. On the Sabbath day, about 11 o'clock in the sermon time, It grew so dark that one could not see a person from one end of the meeting house to the other, except it was against a window. Nor could know another four seats off, nor read a word in a psalm book. It continued near half an hour. Some ministers sent for candles. Some sat still till it was lighter. Some was ready to think the world was at an end. All seemed to be concerned. It was a time when the air was very full of smoke. It came daily down when it was a southwest wind, and the wind being now, as I remember, at east, which might bring the smoke back, and dark clouds pass over as it being cloudy weather. I was an eyewitness of this myself. A 1912 U.S. Forest Service report about forest fires gives a list of dark days affecting New England that had entered the historical record up until that time. It includes dark days of varying intensity in 1706,1716. 1706, 1732, 1780, 1814, 1819, 1836, 1881, and 1894. As we'll see, there was at least one more in 1950, but the next day of historical interest is what we know as the Yellow Day of 1881.
0: On September 6, 1881, Emily Dickinson opened a letter to Mary Bowles with the words, I give you only a word, this mysterious morning in which we must light the lamps to see each other's faces. On September 7th, the Boston Globe described what that mysterious morning was like. Yesterday, Boston was shrouded and nature's gloom soon infusing itself into the hearts of all made it a day long to be remembered, reminding one vividly of that famous dark day of years ago. About seven o'clock in the morning, the Golden pall shrouded the city in its embrace, and the weird, unreal appearance continued throughout the day. As one approached a doorway from within and glanced out upon the sidewalk and street, it was difficult to dispel the illusion that an extensive conflagration was raging near, and that it was the yellow, gleaming light from the burning houses that produced the singular effect. Before long, darkness began to fall and lamps had to be lit, as Harper's Magazine relates. The singular light, which to many persons seemed to be brassy rather than golden, produced extraordinary effects. Although the air appeared to be unusually bright, the light was painful to the eyes and it was difficult to read or write without artificial light. One person, busily writing, found himself gradually moving out upon the piazza into the open air. His neighbor, reading by the open door, found his eyes tired, as if reading in the late twilight, and he abandoned his book. The village merchant nearby could not see to attend to his business, and at eleven o'clock in the morning, lighted his lamps, which burned with a white spectral glare, like the electric lights. Writing in Forgotten New England, Ryan W. Owen continues the tale. By noon, the skies had darkened to the point that the birds were seen roosting, and people so accustomed to relying on natural light during their 19th century days reached for artificial lights to light their offices and homes. Early afternoon trains left Boston with lamps lit, and the railroad men were seen leaving the depots with their lit lanterns in hand, a scene usually only seen on evening and night trains.
1: People were already on edge because a great comet had dominated the skies from late May to late September. C 1888 K1, as it's scientifically designated, was first spotted from the southern hemisphere in May, then viewed from the northern hemisphere starting in mid June. It was the first comet to be successfully photographed, and it's sometimes described as the brightest comet in recorded history. It was so bright that the long tail could be seen sweeping across the sky even in the middle of the day. Just a few weeks after the comet had passed out of view, the skies turned yellow. Was this some terrible side effect of passing through the comet's tail? Or was it something worse? A few people worried that the world might be ending, as they remembered the prophecy attributed to 16th century soothsayer Mother Shipton that said, The world to an end shall come in 1881. However, that prophecy had been invented for an 1862 book, and it wasn't something she ever said. However, that didn't stop people from worrying. Ryan W. Owen describes how Bostonians reacted as light receded from the world. So many Bostonians rushed to the Equitable Building to view the strange day from its high roof, that the roof had to be closed to further visitors in the afternoon people sought explanations for what they were witnessing. The calmest theories blamed forest fires raging in Canada or Michigan, combining with fog and overcast skies in New England. Others attributed the yellowish hue to large amounts of pollen in the air from pine and fir trees. Many fretted about the skies, and more than a few feared that the Judgment Day was at hand. Some took this even further. Groups of Second Adventists in Worcester, Woonsocket, and Hartford were seen wearing their ascension robes to local schoolhouses, where they awaited the world's end. More than a few whispered that the Saffron Curtain was the sign of a divine judgment for the July 1881 shooting that had left President Garfield ailing in New Jersey. Harper's describes the, perhaps apocryphal, religious concern in one neighboring community. A rural deacon, pallid with terror, declared that he believed the end of the world to be at hand. "'but he was evidently overcome with fear. "'Why, Brother Jahil,' said a neighbor, "'I suppose tis. "'But what then? "'You always said you wanted to be in heaven, "'and I guess you'll be there before dinner. "'You ought to be happy anyway.' "'But it was evident that even Brother Jahil "'did not wish such happiness to be thrust upon him too suddenly.'
0: "'This time the cause was quickly known.' Observers again smelled smoke and saw the sooty residue left behind by the yellow air. Telegraph operators reached out across the country and soon heard news of the Great Thumb Fire. In faraway Michigan, in a corner of the map that looks like the thumb on a mitten, a forest fire was burning that would consume over a million acres of woodland before it burned itself out. Almost 300 people were killed thousands of buildings were destroyed, and tens of thousands of people were left homeless. The Boston Globe describes the bizarre visual effects caused by the smoke-saturated atmosphere. From almost every store and dwelling, lights flashed and gleamed with a dazzling brightness and distinctive whiteness. Why gas should be thus affected is a question for the scientists to decide. By some, the opinion is held that the additional yellow rays in the atmosphere cut off those from the gas flame and thus give it additional clearness, while others assert that it is accounted for by some peculiarity of combustion in the charged atmosphere. The public garden seemed to have taken on an additional charm with its display of varying greens and vivid colorings. Far stranger freaks were played with the colors there than those in the pictures of the human family in a photographer's gallery. Flowers of pink turned pure white, and the serene blue of Lobelia became a deep bronze, while flowers of yellow became pearly in their whiteness. The grass became a wonderful blue in many places, and the trees varied in their colors from deep sea green to Prussian blue while here and there, where the specks of autumn had tinged them with its hue, they stood out from their places grave, dark, and rusty.
1: A description from Professor Williams of the colors visible on the 1780 dark day makes it appear that the dark day and the yellow day were merely different degrees of the same phenomenon. The color of objects that day was also worthy of remark. It is mentioned in the observations made by the gentleman here that the complexion of the clouds was compounded of a faint red, yellow, and brown, and that during the darkness, objects which commonly appear green were of the deepest green, verging to blue, and that those which appear white were highly tinged with yellow. Much the same observation was pretty generally made. Almost every object appeared to me tinged with yellow, rather than with any other color. This I found to be the case with everything I held up to view, whether near or remote from the eye. That 1912 Forest Service report that we'll go into more detail with in a few minutes makes the connection clear. Most dark days might more properly be called yellow days. Even Black Friday, May 19, 1780, which was the most memorable of all the dark days of modern times, was preceded by a gradually increasing yellowness and an odor. Unlike in 1881, after the 1780 Dark Day, people were left guessing what had happened. The Boston Gazette attempted a bit of CYA by saying, The printers acknowledge their incapacity of describing the phenomenon which appeared in this town on Friday last, and shall therefore leave it to astronomers whose more particular business it is. Cotton Tufts, Abigail Adams' uncle, recorded one possible explanation for the 1780 Dark Day. This uncommon darkness, greater in degree and longer in duration than it had ever been before, amongst us occasioned much speculation. Some attributed it to the influence of the planets, some to the effects of a comet, and some toward the eruption of a volcano. A close attention to what appeared before and during this event will help us to, at least, a probable solution of this matter, without having recourse to the planets, etc. for a cause. Prior to this, the woods from Ticonderoga for 30 miles downwards had been for some time on fire. No rain for many days, winds chiefly at west and northwest. By these, the smoke and vapors were carried to a great distance, insomuch that in our vicinity, the sky was at times obscured, the air crowded with smoke and vapors, a disagreeable smell like what proceeds from swamps on fire.
0: Our Professor Williams got very close to the truth and the cause from whence the uncommon quantity of these vapors was derived is easily ascertained. It is well known that in this part of America it is customary to make large fires in the woods for the purpose of clearing the lands in a new settlement. This was the case this spring in a much greater degree than is common. In the county of York in the western part of the state of New Hampshire, in the western parts of this state, and in Vermont, uncommonly large and extensive fires have been kept up. A large quantity of the vapors, thus collected in the atmosphere on the 19th of May, were floating near the surface of the earth. Wheresoever the specific gravity of any vapor is less than the specific gravity of the air, by the laws of fluids, such a vapor will ascend in the air. Where the specific gravity of a vapor in the atmosphere is, is greater than that of the air, such a vapor will descend. And where the specific gravity of the vapor and the air are the same, the vapor will then be at rest, floating or swimming in the atmosphere, without ascending or descending. Williams then references his barometrical readings to theorize that the specific gravity of the vapor on the 19th of May was greater than the surrounding air, because the smoke particles in it made it more heavy, and that was why the day turned so dark. Williams was right about the general cause. It was, in fact, smoke from forest fires. But he had some of the details wrong. The mechanism that caused the smoke to concentrate, causing the 1780 Dark Day and the 1881 Yellow Day, wouldn't be fully explained until 1912. And the source of the smoke wouldn't be discovered until 2005, 225 years after Williams published his paper.
1: In 1912, Henry S. Graves of the U.S. Forest Service published a report called Forest Fires, Their Causes, Extent, and Effects, with a summary of recorded destruction and losses. In it, there's a whole section on the smoke phenomena of forest fires, which delves into dark days and, by extension, yellow days. The tendency is for smoke to spread out and to be dissipated. But if the volume is great, it may be identified for hundreds of miles, even when the cause of it is unknown. At greater distances, where the smoke is more attenuated, there is only a slight obscuration of light, though if the smoke has descended to the earth, it may interfere with vision. At still greater distances from the fire when the smoke has been further mixed with clear air, its presence can only be noted by a yellow or pearly haze about the horizon or by the discoloration of rain. These phenomena, observed from time immemorial, have been known by various names, in this country as Dark Days, Dry Fogs, Indian Summers, and Colored Rains. Dark days have been recorded for centuries. Usually... There is a gradually increasing gloom until it becomes so dark that artificial light is necessary. This darkness may last a few hours or several days, and decrease as gradually as it came. We are now able to show that dark days are due to dense smoke in the atmosphere, and that in this country, forest and prairie fires have been the causes. In other countries, peat fires and volcanic eruptions have also furnished smoke to produce dark days, but such cases are more rare. Theories advanced in olden times that dark days are caused by solar eclipses or by the transit of inferior planets across the solar disk are ridiculous. Since a total solar eclipse seldom lasts over five minutes, and a transit of Venus, the largest and nearest of the inferior planets, is barely visible to the naked eye and would not cause a diminution of light or heat that would be measurable. If any consideration of such theories were necessary, it would be sufficient to point out that the dark days of modern history have not been coincident with either eclipses or transits. Graves then goes on to talk about the evidence that historic dark days were caused by fire, mostly by citing some of the same sources that we've already shared. Having demonstrated the cause, he then lays out an argument for why New England, and Boston in particular, have experienced more dark days than other areas of the continent. New England easily leads in the phenomena of very dark days, and several of the most pronounced have affected practically the same area. The tracks of many air currents and storm centers converge toward this area from all over the United States, and sometimes meet an opposing storm from the east or northeast. It therefore seems that dark days are caused by the banking up of smoke-laden air. The greatest forest fires have occurred in the northern states, and the winds, transporting the smoke eastward, flow over the New England states. At such a time, if a nor'easter flows in from the ocean and banks up a smoke-laden stratum, increasing its thickness and density, it is evident that obscurity and perhaps darkness will result.
0: In the paper, Graves included a map of the northeastern United States, stretching from Michigan to Maine and from Kentucky to Delaware. Over the New England states, a series of concentric circles outline the extent of the historically recorded dark days from 1706 to 1910. If you've ever looked at a weather report during the middle of a classic nor'easter, you'll recognize the sweep of the jet stream down from Canada and the swirling pattern the map of New England's dark days traces with the bullseye directly over Boston. Pulling a quick description from Wikipedia, and nor'easter is a macro-scale cyclone. The name derives from the direction of the strongest winds that will be hitting an eastern seaboard of the northern hemisphere. As the cyclonic air mass rotates counterclockwise, winds tend to blow northeast to southwest, over the region covered by the northwest quadrant of the cyclone. They thrive on converging air masses, the cold polar air mass and the warmer air over the water and are more severe in winter, where the difference in temperature between these air masses is greater. If a fire happens particularly late in the season, or a nor'easter happens particularly early, the two can coincide. In that case, the smoke from the fire won't blow out over the ocean and dissipate. Instead, the smoke carried on the cold jet stream runs into the wet, heavy air circulating over the ocean, like a car running into a tree. It keeps on piling up heavier and denser until the day turns dark. With modern fire control policies and techniques, northern forests are less likely to be torn by fires that consume tens of thousands or even millions of acres. Less uncontrolled fires means fewer chances for dark days, but modern science allows us to see which fires of old led to the dark days we've discussed. A 2005 paper in the International Journal of Wildland Fire finally pinpointed the source of the 1780 smoke. By combing through the written records of the day and then overlaying that data with modern techniques for interpreting fire scar evidence, a group of experts believe they located the 1780 fire in the remote Algonquin Highlands in southern Ontario. In
1: 1950... Smoke from an even more remote source would cause another dark day in Boston, the last one we could find in the historical record. This time, we had the technology to know what was happening and where it came from, yet there were still people who refused to believe the science. Dark day truthers, if you will. It all started in a remote corner of Canada, as the Edmonton Journal recollects. The beginning of what some people thought was the end of the world started on June 2, 1950, with a small wildfire in the northeast corner of British Columbia. It had been an exceptionally hot spring, and forest fire managers were too busy with other fires in B.C., Alberta, and the southern Yukon to do anything about a blaze that was remote and so far away from human settlement. The policy back then was to ignore fires that were 15 kilometers away from roads or human settlements. Within a few days, though, the fire crossed into Alberta's Chinchaga wildlands. Fueled by a tender, dry forest that seemingly went on forever, the relatively small blaze developed into a wildfire of such monstrous proportions that the thickness of the smoke led some to believe that an atomic bomb had exploded and that the Western world was at war with Russia. The blaze burned for 222 days and torched a stretch of forest that was 245 kilometers long. It was, and still is, the biggest forest fire to hit Canada in modern times.
0: It ended up burning 4.2 million acres of forest, with the worst of the damage occurring when a strong, steady wind blew from September 22nd to 24th. On the 24th and 25th, that cool, steady wind ran into the warm, wet breeze circling off the coast of New England. This time, Boston was on the northern edge of the affected area, becoming just dark enough to cause streetlights to come on during the daytime. The deepest darkness stretched from Virginia to New York. A resident of upstate New York wrote, It was not until noon that I first noticed the strange yellow light outside. It kept getting darker and darker. The strange hot tawny color at the zenith had the quality of a yellow August afterglow, yet different. By 2 p.m. it was almost like night. In the west, deep blue-black clouds. Then the sky went from Mars violet up to tawny orange. Lower clouds, white and cold. In the southeast, brilliant yellow light at the horizon. Another upstate New Yorker said, We noticed that the sky was becoming dark, but with a strange color, a yellowish or greenish or even orange-brown. Having been to Sunday school and church that morning, My brother and I wondered if the hellfire and brimstone preacher had been right about the impending end of the world. Mother and daddy, being a bit more aware of the larger world and its escalating politics of the Cold War with the USSR, atom bomb tests, and so on, speculated it might have been some sort of horrible weapon or bomb test perpetrated by the Soviets.
1: A small sample of the explanations for the dark day on one online message board gives one a glimpse into the fever dreams of a populace that is no longer tethered to the concept of scientific truth. No one had an answer for what caused the unusual day. They set a fire in Canada. The army was testing a new weapon. A spaceship had covered the sun and it was the end of the world and on and on. Very few people remember that day. I would really like to know what happened. We didn't have cell phones, computers, or much TV. We really were in the dark. Let me know what you know about this day. One thing, it wasn't the end of the world.
0: My father always told us that the cloud was from a nuclear test in the Ural Mountains in the USSR gone wrong. And it was the debris from the Ural Mountains and not simply a forest fire. The forest fires at Fort McMurray do not act the same way as the one that Sunday in 1950. That same cloud went around the world before it finally dispersed.
1: I found an interesting article that indicates the military was conducting bioterror exercises on September 20th, 1950 on the West Coast. Ooh. Do you think it would have taken four days for that to reach us in the East? It would explain why the one woman who posted on your thread said that there was a high incidence of women having mentally retarded children during that time. Just a thought. I was born in 1971, and I just heard about Black Sunday today. So strange.
0: I know. There are U.S. government Air Force theories about USAF using cloud seed cover weaponry in trials. And also, the approval of N-bomb trials given that year in January.
1: There was no odor of smoke, and I don't recall any stars visible. It seemed to take a lot longer than two minutes for the darkness to return to daylight. The only explanation I ever heard was the forest fire story, which I never believed. My own thoughts are of a government experiment to try to hide the carbon plants from the area from the view of aircraft from above. Surprisingly, none of these commenters
0: left evidence of their Ph.D. credentials. And that, my friends, is where Pizzagate, climate denial, and the Trump presidency come from.
1: To learn more about Boston's history of dark days, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 085 we'll have links to first-hand accounts of all three of Boston's dark days. We'll also link to Sidney Purley's book about the history of New England's weather, Ryan Owen's article about the Yellow Day, and that great 1912 Forest Service report explaining the phenomenon. We'll have a John Greenleaf Whittier poem about the 1780 dark day, and we'll link to an article about the Chinchaga Fire, as well as a page where credulous people post their conspiracy theories about it. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. We'll also have a link in the show notes to the website of History Camp Boston, which is coming up on July 7th. History Camp is a cool event that democratizes the concept of a history conference. You don't have to be a historian or a professor to attend. Everyone's welcome, and there are still great sessions by well-known historians, including plenty of people we've quoted on the show. I'm excited to attend sessions on magic in early New England, on the impact of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic on Boston, on how the popularity of bicycles helped to propel women's suffrage forward, and on the filling of Boston's back bay by the scholar who wrote my favorite book on the topic. There will also be a cool panel discussion about history podcasting, which will feature Mick Sullivan from The Past and the Curious, Edward O'Donnell of In the Past Lane, Liz Covart from Ben Franklin's World, and Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Oh, and me, the co-host of Hub History, completely out of my league with these real historians and popular podcasters. If you attend, let us know you're a listener. We'll have stickers and maybe some other goodies for fans we get to meet, and there's always time to get to know each other between sessions. In addition... I'll be leading a very special tour of the back bay focused on the process of constructing a fancy neighborhood out of a stagnant salt marsh on the Sunday after history camp. You can get the details, read about the other great sessions that'll be offered and register to attend at historycamp.org Boston.
0: If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are hub history on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the
1: show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.